Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Vince. I am one of the elders here, the teaching pastor. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you at some point. I see some unfamiliar faces, so I'd love to to meet you at some point. If you have your Bible this morning um, near you, um, and if you don't, there's one near you, turn to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 30. Um, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's fine. Um, Exodus is in the Old Testament, which is the front section of your Bible. Um, Near near the very front, you've got Genesis, and then right after that is Exodus. Um, And then what you're looking for is the big, bold number. So the number 30 in Exodus. That's the chapter number. That's what we're looking at, 30 and 31 this morning. We've been uh, making our way through the book of Exodus, seeing really God's faithful hand throughout the entire flow of the book. faithful hand and leading hand and guiding hand, um, guiding his people uh, out of slavery. God is a God who desires to save his people. He he desires to save his people. In fact, the the book of Exodus is God's story of redemption. In fact, really the, the entire Bible is God's story of redemption. And you'll remember if you've been with us that that the people of God are enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years. They've been enslaved in Egypt, treated harshly under a, a harsh king in a land not their own. And, and God promised that that would happen many years before that. He promised that that would happen, and it did. God also promised that he would then free them from slavery, that he would save them, that, they, that he would redeem them as a people from slavery, and he did right? Let me hear from you. Does God always keep his promises? Yeah? So we see it over and over that, he, that he's promised them a place. He's promised them a home, a, a flourishing land. He's promised all of this so that the people could come and worship, right? So that they could worship God. He saved them to that. And so we've got to remember that, that, that God is a loving God who desires relationship with his people, that he, he desires relationship with his people, but that, that relationship is built around worshiping him. And, and so we, we've seen since the, the first part of January, did you realize it was this long? Law after law after law. Since January, we've stepped into this section in the book of Exodus that's been law after law. We're in April. Law after law after law of these commands, these laws from God. We started in chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments. Law after law. God showing His people what a worship relationship must look like. That God is a holy God. He's requiring from His people holiness. He's a holy God, and to be in relationship with God, you have to be holy as well. So He's he's requiring that. and he, He knows that they will not be holy and so he provides a way for them to be holy not in and of themselves but through sacrifices and offerings then mediated by a a priest but those sacrifices must be done daily right multiple times a day over and over and over and over again 
God requires holiness. He requires obedience. He requires it. And so, yes, he, he gives the people a way to atone for, to cover their sin. And in, diso, in disobedience, they continue to sin. But still, he requires obedience, holiness. In fact, over and over and over again, what we see is this disobedience and this opposition uh, against God. And in that, the punishment is death. And we see that over and over and over and over again in Exodus 30 and 31 this morning. But it didn't originate there, did it? But that requirement of holiness and then that requirement of death if you oppose God did not originate there. This originated where? In the beginning of creation when God made man and woman and they opposed God, went their own way. And God said, if you sin, you shall surely die. Right? So, so God demands obedience. And he says, if you don't obey, you will die. The, the burden of death is still there. Even though I've given you a way to atone for that, the burden is still there. It's, it's death for you or, or it's death for a, a lamb or a sacrifice. There's death. And we walked through this last week, but, but praise be to God that because of Christ's sacrifice once, we no longer have to offer daily sacrifices, right? That, 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 that right there, we're not an amening church, but that right there ought to rouse in us an amen. That there's not this daily need to offer bloody sacrifices to atone for our sins. And yet, I think at times, we still live as if that burden still exists. I think we still live in this pattern, that, that this burden of death and this burden in the Christian life still exists. Do you, you feel that? Let, let me pause just a second and, and ask the, the question, do you ever feel like or, or do you often feel like the Christian life is one of burden? you ever feel that? That, that the Christian life is, is one of burden, that I, I have to obey and that I have to be in community, Right? They tell us that every Sunday, right? I have to be in a township. I have to be here on Sunday. I, I have to, to read my Bible. I have to pray. I, I have to do these things. And so we feel the weight at times and the burden at, at times of, of what we believe is the, the Christian life. And if I could simplify it into to one question and, and ask it this way. Do we actually enjoy life with God do we do we actually enjoy life with God do we understand that that we are living because God has graciously given us life and then do we actually enjoy it we we have life because God has given it to us life to enjoy to, to enjoy 
At times we, we even go so far, I think, at least I do, to, to think that, that the world, right, those who, who don't profess to, to follow God, the world actually has a better time than I do. You ever been there where, where you think that they are the ones who enjoy life? And I think at times I think that because they are actually enjoying what they consider life more than, than, than I do. Do you feel that with me? I think often we forget what Jesus had to say to those who were following him long ago. In John 10, he says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And I think all too often we flip that. And we feel it that way. That the Christian life is one of burden and death. And, and we just feel like oh, I've just got to give up myself. But, but Christ says that I, I've come that they would have life and have it abundantly. God is not the author of death and destruction. He, that comes from the thief. That comes from the enemy of God. That comes from sin and its consequences and its effects. The enemy comes in to, to bring death and destruction. But Jesus came to give life, uh, abundant, flourishing, enjoyable life. So do you, do you hear that this morning? That, that Jesus came to give us true, flourishing life. And, and it, it may be this morning, this morning, at, at 9.36, that you need to just hear that, that Jesus came to give you a flourishing life, enjoyment with Him. Maybe that you're in a dark place, a discouraged place this morning. Jesus has life for you. Flourishing life. Is anyone else there this morning besides me that you feel this sort of darkness? needing to hear and believe that Jesus has come to give life. And listen, this has been the plan of God all along. Do you know that? That Jesus didn't come and rearrange the plans of God. God, I like what you did there, but there's a lot of death, so I'm going to rearrange it. Now, this has been the plan all along. Even in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus, even with the laws of God, law after law after law, God gave those laws so that the people would know true life. That's why He gave them. So that they would know true and abundant life. This struck me this week as I was reading through and studying. We read through the passage as elders on Tuesday morning and we were kind of joking about how, oh man, there's so much death, right? If they don't do it, they're going to die. And we read through it and it struck me that Exodus 30 and 31 and so much of what we've emphasized over the last weeks has been death. But God has given life and He desires for His people to flourish Remember, what's he promised? A land flowing with milk and honey. That's flourishing life, right? This is not Nebraska. This is Fort Collins. He's promised them. Sorry, Nebraskans. He's, he's promised them a flourishing life. He, he's, he's not a God of death and destruction, but he's a God of life. Uh, and so we see, even in these laws, that God desires for His people to have abundant, flourishing life with Him. And remember, it all circles back to the fact that God has freed His people to a life of worship. 
He's freed his people to a life of worshiping him, not a burdensome, enslaved life, but an abundant, flourishing life of worship. And so here's what we'll do this morning. Here's what we'll do this morning. We'll read through both chapters in several different sections showing that God, God has saved the people for life. Not death. Even though we focus on that often, God has saved uh, the people for life and, and not death. Look at, look at chapter 30. We'll, we'll begin reading. We'll section this out. He says, uh, chapter 30, verse 1, You shall make an altar uh, on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its moldings, on two opposite sides of it, you shall, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make this, I mean, this is life, right? And this is life, right? So you, verse five, you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a, or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Here's what we see first. Here's what we see first. And I'll hopefully section this out for us as as we see. What, What we see first is that God has given life. God has given life, specifically life in prayer to God. He's given us that life. This is what we, what, what this altar of incense is about. God goes into great detail about this altar. It's, it's quite similar to uh, the, the altar that, that's in the courtyard. Similar in looks, uh, made of the same materials placed right outside the holy place. So we remember this from several weeks ago when Eric was talking uh, about it. The, the, there's this altar in the courtyard and then now this other altar, this altar of incense is inside the tabernacle. It's inside uh, of that curtain that, that where God would meet with Moses. The ark was right on the other side of that. The ark of the covenant, which was right on the other side where God would meet with Moses. This altar of incense is only about 18 inches by 18 inches. So it, it is quite small. It's a much smaller altar than the one that we talked about a few weeks ago. Aaron is instructed then to burn incense on it every morning when he's preparing the lamps for burning and every evening when he is uh, tending to the lamps as well. This is a regular offering to the Lord generation after generation. This altar is where the priests would come to do what? To offer prayers to God. And so the responsibility and the authority to come to this altar and to offer prayers uh, uh, was was given by God to the priests. This was part of of their role they they represented the people before god and so they would come to this altar and they burned incense to the lord the smoke then 
symbolically rising up from the altar into heaven. This is symbolically representing these prayers of the people that the priests have offered rising up into heaven to God. And so what we see first is that there is life in prayer to God. There, there's life there. That God has given the, the people a, a, a good and flourishing life that He's offered them a way uh, to, for their prayers to be heard through a representative priest at the altar of incense. There is life in prayer to God. Now, how do we see that? Now, how do we see life? Well, we're told in verse 9 of chapter 30 that unauthorized incense shall not be burned on this altar. Now, this is foreshadowing. Right? This is foreshadowing to an event you can read about later in, in Leviticus 10 where Aaron's two sons, Nadab and, and Abihu, offered wrong incense or unauthorized incense on the altar. And God did what? He took their lives instantly. He, he took their lives instantly. And so the burden and the consequence of death is there when wrong incense is burned. These, here, here's where this all goes. their prayers would not be heard, right? Because they're dead. Their their prayers would not be heard because these two priests fell down dead. Now now back to this. God gives life abundantly in relationship uh, of prayer. His intention is life. His gift is life. But since He is a holy God, He also requires death when the flourishing, abundant life is opposed. You see that? So often we focus on the death part. That's not God's intention. His intention is this. That life uh, in, in abundance. God gives life in, in abundant relationship to Him in prayer. Now here's the beauty for us. Because of Christ... Our prayers do not have to go through a human mediator who may or may not offend God in the way that they do things. Our prayers are heard by God any time we offer them up because of Jesus. Think about that. While you're driving, right? You can pray. While you're you're gardening, right? You can pray. While you're in the bathroom, you can, you can pray, right? I was running yesterday, and I spent a little bit of time praying, right? Part of it cursing the wind, but and a lot of it praying, right? We can pray anywhere. We, we looked at these verses last week, but Hebrews seven. Uh, 23 through 25 tells us that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, right? There were a lot of priests in this line of priests because they kept dying. They they had to to continue in, in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost at, at, at all times those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is because of Jesus that we can draw near to God anytime. We can, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of God in prayer. 1 John 2 tells us that, that we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? It's not a human priest. Who, who is it? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. God has given us life, true and abundant, flourishing life with Him 
because of His Son, through His Son. And one of the markers of that true and abundant life is continual prayer to the Father, relationship with the Father. There's life. There's life. Yeah. And still, the the discipline of prayer can often be one of the most difficult disciplines to keep. Can't it? We're talking about disciplines. That that discipline can can often be one of the most difficult disciplines to keep. But but Jesus hears us. And so let me put some application in in front of us. And I've done this before, but I'll, I'll do it again because I think it needs to be there. On the last Wednesday of every month, at noon, we gather here in the building to pray. Right? So, so we gather here to pray together and we invite the entire church. You too have been invited and we announce it regularly. Right? We announce that. And, and I would say this to, to put a little fire under you. There is not much more important that you could do during that day than gather with a group of people who are in need of God to approach God. And so those Wednesdays at noon, I, I, I look at those and I think that the, ought to be packed with people who are drawing in to approach the God who has given them life. We have to be setting up more and more and more chairs. And so I'll, I'll say this, moms um, at home, um, bring your kids with you. If that's the, the issue, bring them with you. What a beautiful thing it would be for them to see. Uh, college students, bring your lunch, right? Just sit and eat as we pray together. People who are maybe working during that time, ask your boss once a month if you can have a few extra minutes at lunch to gather. Here's why. Because God has given life to us in an ongoing relationship with him through prayer. Do we take advantage of that? Let's keep reading. Not only did God give instructions for an altar, He also gave instructions for a census to be taken. Right? How's life there? Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. We all know that. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich, we need to hear this, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it to uh, give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Here's what we see. Number two. Here's what we see. Life in living. God has given life in living for God. Now here's what I mean by that. A, a census can provide all kinds of information, right? It can provide all kinds of information for a people in a certain area. But in the times of the Exodus, in the, in the events of what we're reading about, there were only a few reasons to gather a census. And the primary reason for that was to figure out how many men you had among you who could go to war when there was battle. So they would draw up a, a census to see what, what they were dealing with. 
But that's not what God is requiring here. He's communicating something larger than wartime. He's communicating something much larger. He says, take a a census and each person, rich or poor, must give a half shekel as an offering. And there's an outcome for this. If you're counted in the census and you give that half shekel, you will what? Live, right? Plagues will not destroy you. And and so what is God communicating? Does he need money? No. Is God saying, give money and, and that will save you? No, God is communicating this. I gave you life. And if you are counted in the census, you need to remember that the reason you are counted is because you are alive, right? This isn't Chicago. We don't count dead people, right? We're, we're counting those who are alive, And so God is communicating the reason that you're even a part of this census is because you are alive. God has given us life in living for God. If God counts you, it's because you you belong to Him. And the Israelite people needed to remember that. And I would say this, so do we. God has given us life in living for God. God. God has given us life to be lived out for Him. God has given us a reason and a purpose in our lives. Maybe you don't know what that is yet, but but I'll tell you the end of the story. It's for Him. It's all in direction of pointing to Him. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter as well, where he says that that we were not ransomed with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So put that together. That, that, That you're not your own. You were bought with a price. What's that price? The precious blood of Jesus. You were bought. You're not your your own. God has given us life in living for God. And if we have life, it comes from God as a gift to be offered back to Him in our living for Him. That changes the way we live. Or it ought to, right? It it ought to be changing the way we live. We we can be generous with our time because it's not ours. We can be generous and open-handed with our money because it's not ours. We can, listen, we can courageously give up our lives for the sake of something bold because our lives are not our own. We we can do that. We've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. And so I would ask you to consider this and I need to consider this. How are you living in such a way that shows your life was given to you as a gift? How are you living that, that shows that? Let's continue. Verse 17. Look at verse verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze and, and its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Here's what we see. 
But we see this, that God has given life in purity for God. This bronze basin, this bronze bowl was to be constructed with a, a bronze stand, all for the purpose of the priests washing themselves, right? They are to clean themselves, purify themselves before they enter into the tent. This basin is set between the, the altar and the tent, right? Twice, you caught it, twice in these five verses, God says, wash or purify yourselves. Why? So that you may not die. And I think, again, we often focus on that part, death. Oh, God's scary. He's going to kill us all. We focus on that, but I want to keep putting in front of us that death is the consequence of life not lived for God. We often forget that. That death is the consequence of life not lived for God. The focus is life. God is not a God of death and destruction. He gives life. He gives abundant life and, and, and flourishing life for our enjoyment of Him, a life of worship of Him. Now, I suppose the, the way we could read these verses is, is this. If you don't want to live in the ways the giving God has set before us, then He'll take away that opportunity. But that's our doing, right? If we don't want to live in the way that God is giving, graciously giving and setting before us, then He'll take away that opportunity, and that is our doing. God is not a God of death and destruction, but a God of life and abundance and flourishing. God gives life in purity for God. These priests were to be ceremonially clean before they entered into the presence of God. Why? On behalf of the people. There's life in that. There is life in that. God continues with more instruction, more instructions about this abundant life that he has given. We see it in verses 22 through 38. I won't read it. It's a long section of recipes for incense, and you can find them on Pinterest as well. So they're, they're all there. Probably can't, actually. Don't go to Pinterest for lots of reasons. But um, so um, here they are, verses uh, 17, or 22 through 38. There are multiple instructions about this anointing oil and the, the incense that's, that, that's instructed there. The priests are to use to consecrate, to uh, anoint or to set apart as holy. The, the, the priests and the furniture and the tent, all of these things used, why? In, in the purpose of worshiping God. All of the 17 verses, 17 verses, point our attention to how God has given life in being set apart to, to God. Consecrated. Set apart. He's given life there. Right? The instruction after instruction and instru- after instruction about how these oils and incense are to be made and the purpose of, uh, of all of these things. Everything that is to be used for the worship of God to be set apart with this anointing oil or incense. The, this is a, a symbolic act communicating, yes, this is for God. Right? Yep, this too is also for God. And, and yes, this too is holy for God. This is set apart for God. And with these oils and with this incense, God has instructions of how it is to be used rightly. Right? He has instructions. It's not to be put on just anything or, or anyone. It's not to be made of just anything or, or, or put on, onto anything. There are requirements for how it is to be made and how it's to be used. There is life there. That's all a part of the flourishing life. There's life in how these people and these items for worship are to be used. That God has given the people a way of life. He's not a God of death and destruction. 
He's a God of life. But if the oil and the incense is used inappropriately, we're told twice in these 17 verses that the people would be cut off. The person who used it incorrectly would be cut off from his people. He would be separated from his people. There there was a, a consequence for not living within the flourishing life that God graciously gives. And it's harsh. It was to be cut off from the people. It was to be cut off from the blessings and the benefits of being a part of God's people. And for these people, this is as good as death. To to be cut off. And we often focus on that, don't we? How could God just cut off a a people? We we lean in the direction of, of that. But consequence isn't what God desires or intends you hear that? The consequence isn't what God desires. He, he desires not death and, and destruction, but he is the author of life and he gives life in uh, abundance. And so here with this oil and incense, his intent is life in being set apart to God. And here's the beauty and the hope that, that, that we get to see because of Christ. Because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, our hope is what Paul says in in Romans 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor angels nor rulers nor, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to cut us off from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will be able to cut us off from God's people, God's presence, God's love, God's blessings, and being a part of His family because Jesus who came to give abundant life, nothing will separate us, cut us off from the love of God. He's given us the gift of life. He is the God of life. Not death or destruction or separation. He's the God of life. We get to chapter 31 and we take a turn in these instructions. We, we take a turn from all these laws and instructions about the tent and the furniture and the priests and the clothing and the incense and the oils, and we take this turn back to something we mentioned several weeks ago, that if, that if God is going to command how these things were going to be made, and if God is going to command how these things are going to be constructed, then He would have to provide for that to happen. And we already know that he's provided for, for the, the, the elements of how it's going to be made by plundering the Egyptians. We know that that has happened. We've talked through how God provided the gold and, and the material through, through that plundering. But here in chapter 31, we see how God has given flourishing life to his people through creativity. Right? So through creativity. Look at chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses... See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. 
And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. How did Dan get so lucky? Right? And I have given to all able men ability. Let me read that again. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all of the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand and all its utensils, and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for the service as priest and the, turn the page, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. God says to Moses, These two men, these two men I have called by name, Bezalel and Aholiab. Not only have I called them by name, but but I've filled both of these men with the Spirit of God, that they have both been given the ability, read those words, ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to artistically design all of the things that we've just walked through since January. I've given these two men the the abilities to do that. God cares. We've already talked about this. God cares about artistic design. He is the one who has given gifts for it. I'll I'll put it out there uh, again. I I made this plea er, earlier uh, a couple months ago. For any of you who have artistic um, inclinations toward creativity... I would like to invite you to be a part of a, a conversation of other artists who, who are gathering to see how God might be at work using us in, in creativity and how we present things as worship. And, and so we have a book that I, I've been giving out to anyone who's interested. I've got, I think, seven more copies. And I've got them up here with me. So if you're interested, please let me know and, and, and I'll invite you to this ongoing conversation because God cares about creativity. And if you're feeling left out because God hasn't given you artistic ability, or if you're more like Eric and, and you are feeling left out, I want you all then to look at verse 6 again. Because God says, And I have given to all able men and women, I have given to all able people ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. If you have ability in anything at all, where did that come from? God. Right? And so he says, I've given everyone ability to do these things. Who did that come from? For what purpose? To point all of this back to God. That's the point. So mathematic, uh, mathematicians and, and engineers, um, as boring as you are, God has given you, God has given you the uh, ability and the gifting and, and, and the skill and, and, and really creativity beyond what I can even comprehend. God has given you all of that for the purpose of pointing it back to Him. And there's a place for you in the body, right? That there is absolutely a place for you. That God has given us life in creativity for God. So think about that. God, the, the Creator God, the Creator God, has allowed us to be a part of His creativity. That should blow our minds. 
that he's called us to be in that. He's given us life in that abundant, flourishing life, and he's called us to it, not just called us to it, but he's been gifted us for it. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 has always been a helpful um, a reminder to me in, in thinking through this, where, where Paul says, for we are his workmanship. The, the word there, workmanship, is masterpiece, and it's an artistic word. Think about that. That, that we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God made us as his masterpiece, recreated in Christ, given new life in Christ, and he's prepared us for good works. He's made us and remade us for good works that we should walk that out. That we should walk that out. That God has given something for each of us to do. And here's what I want us to see in this, in the context of Exodus, that we join then the ranks of Bezalel and Aholiab for the purpose of worshiping God. God hasn't called us to build a, a, some tabernacle, some tent in, in the wilderness, but he has called us to be a part of his ongoing work in, in, in creativity and the ongoing work that God is doing in the city and state and con- country and continent and globe uh, to play a part that is eternal. That's eternal. That should, that should boggle our minds. Friends, we, we join the ranks of those who have gone before us and have been called by God for his good works to point attention to him so that we would see more and more of him. That's extremely significant. Why would God call and gift and prepare people like you and me to be a part of what he is doing? I have no idea, right? Uh, because he's a God of love. Because he's a God of life who desires to be in relationship with us, in life with us, so that we can honor and glorify and worship him. Life in creativity for God. And then finally, the the last uh, section in our passage, the final point here. Look at chapter 31. We'll finish this out. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done. But, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And then that final verse, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. God has given us life in rest with him. That's a part of life. Time and time again, God repeats the command of the Sabbath. And this goes all the way back to Exodus 16, when God is instructing the people in how they ought to be gathering manna. 
You do it for six days, and then you rest. You trust me. It goes all the way back then to chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments. And if you remember in the giving of the Ten Commandments, while many of them are rapid fire, do you remember that? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Then we get to Sabbath, and it's verses of explanation and building up this command. Explained in detail, God keeps bringing up this command of keeping the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments, one that stands out as vital to the follower of God from God's command. In fact, God says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, why is it repeated over and over and over and over? It, I think it's this. It points us to life in God. It, it points us to life true life in in resting in in god and we've said it already over the weeks as we've looked at sabbath laws the point of this command is not simply stop working the the point of this command is not simply stop working but it's this stop working so you can stop looking at yourself so you can start looking to god and trust in him it's a pulling away from work so that your eyes can be fixed on him. And I think we see this several ways in this passage. First, God says in verse 13, this is a sign between me and you that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath is meant for us to pause and know God. Know that God is the one who is setting us apart uh, for himself in our uh, week of work which by the way is good that's a good gift from god that he's given us work in, in our week of work our eyes are often fixed on ourselves and what we can accomplish or cannot accomplish right we we fixed on, on our, ourselves for 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 help and and, and significance and, and our identity and we we look at that to to what we can accomplish but in the sabbath our eyes are forced to look elsewhere for help our eyes are forced to look elsewhere for significance and, and to sustenance to God. And so in the Sabbath, we stop working, understanding that God is the one who is faithful to provide for us and sustain us. And it is in the Sabbath rest that our eyes are fixed on Him. And part of the beauty of having Sabbath rest, I would say, on Sunday, is this, that on Sunday, we gather here to recognize that very thing together. So for an hour and a half, and you're thinking, really? I thought it was like two hours. For an hour and a half, one day a week, we all gather here to recognize, hey, look, none of us are working, right? Look around, right? None of you are working right now. And so we gather, we pause to, to, to recognize that, that we aren't working, but we're resting and trusting in the promises of God, that He is God. And, and in some ways, it shouldn't matter if you feel like coming. In some ways, it shouldn't matter if you feel like being here on a Sunday in our gathering. We're communicating together. You're not at work and neither am I. Who are we trusting in? I guess it's God. 
another way that our eyes are forced to look at God in, in Sabbath rest is this, is that Sabbath rest mirrors God. Verse 17, we're reminded again that God created everything in six days. He worked for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, did God need rest? I hope not, right? Because then he's a weak God. Absolutely not. He did not need rest, but he gave us this example of how rest should be played out in a flourishing life. God gave us an example of something we, he did not need, but we do. And so in pulling away from work, we're recognizing our need. We're saying, yep, I'm in need. I can't do, I can't do all this. We need rest. God did not, but he gave us this example. He rest, we're told he rested and was refreshed. The Sabbath for us is just that rest and refreshment, both physically and spiritually. Physically, we stop working, which is restful. Spiritually, we stop working and we are refreshed in keeping our eyes fixed on the God who gives us rest as a gift in life. Not only is the Sabbath a command, but this is something we desperately need. Think about this. Our God commanded us to do something we desperately need. That's a loving God that we need it. And he said, yeah, I'm going to command it too. I'm going to command it. It's life, life-giving. This past week, um, we announced as a church uh, on some online communication we have that this summer I'll be taking a sabbatical. I'll be taking a Sabbath rest away from work. And so for the months of June, July, and August, I'll be pulling away from work here at the town church um, with my family to rest to be renewed, to be refreshed, to, in a lot of ways, recalibrate some of some, some things for, for re-entry back into the very thing that, that God has called me to do here at the town church. And, and so I'm extremely thankful for um, the, this gift that the elders, in, in a lot of ways, our study in Exodus has helped us as elders formulate what we what we need i'm thankful for that time to be able to rest and, and be refreshed and, and to have set aside extended periods of time to look to god for physical and spiritual rest and refreshment and here's something that that i that i haven't done well and i, I confess this to you i think i've confessed this before but i'll confess it in, in a big way here we moved here nine years ago and and for nine years there has not been an hour that, that I have not in some way thought about work. And, and, and so I confess that as, as a sin that, that I need to be pulling away from. And, and so this sort of reset for me is just that. It is helping me gain some perspective on, on physical and spiritual rest and, and refreshment. This is not something we do well as humans, is it? Come on, people. I'm up here about to cry. You can at least say amen or something. This is not something we do well as humans. We have a hard time pulling away from work. And I think in large part, it's just that, that we don't trust God. That we don't trust God to do the things that, that, that we're unable to do. We don't trust God to accomplish what we cannot. We don't trust God to be a good God who's given us life in rest with Him. That's the driving point here, that life in abundance is a, is a gift from God. To be built into that is the command to rest. In fact, two times over in this passage, God says that if the people do not keep this command, they will be put to death. But that's not God's default. The default is life in rest. 
Life with God has built into it rest with Him. And when that does not happen, as God intends, there are consequences. And we know, thanks be to God, that Jesus, our Savior, stepped into the place of death. That, that for my nine years of sort of ongoing uh, negligence in this area, Jesus has stepped into that place and taken my death. He's taken on the penalty for us when we were unable to obey. In fact, the, the, the book of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 tell us that Jesus himself is now our rest. Because he took on the penalty, standing in our place, and that Sabbath rest and all of its requirements have have ultimately been fulfilled in Christ. And still, God in his kindness has given us life in, in rest with him. In his kindness, even though it's been fulfilled in his kindness, has given us life in rest with him. And so over and over and over again in these two chapters, 30 and 31 of Exodus, God intends to give his, his people flourishing, abundant life. And he is the author and sustainer of life. He's written into law life. Chapter 31 ends with this, that that God giving Moses these two tablets of stone written with his own finger. Laws that lead to life. And all too often, the laws that we look at in the Word of God, we lean toward burden and death, don't we? Look at God, He's always killing people. Death. that's, That's what happens and it feels weighty and burdensome and the book of exodus i think helps us in understanding that god has come to save us from that he's come to save us from that this is his story of redemption that we're no longer slaves that that, that we're we're no longer slaves with this death as the ultimate end that we've been given life in christ and here's where we'll end this morning we'll, we'll end here and i am way way over but you'll deal with it all right um here's where we'll end um, Romans 6 tells us this, that the end of those things, where Paul is talking about slavery to sin, the end of those things is death. But, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. When sin and, and entered into the world, death came with it. That was the consequence. And so Paul says what? For the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to take it. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God sent His Son to give us life. Life, I think we see from chapters 30 and 31 in all of these things. Praise be to Him. Let's pray. God, we... um, we gather to to read and and to try to understand more and more about who You are. And so my prayer this morning is that that the things that I have said would not be getting in the way of what you want to communicate to our, to our friends here. That they would see your word clearly and see it as that, as your word, as truth. I pray that we would understand it, that we would grapple with the hard things that we need to wrestle with and that, that we would see areas we need to be growing in, and that we would not feel the burden of sin and death because Christ has lifted that. That we would feel it in so much as it would turn our eyes to see our need but that we would not feel the the burden of sin and death as an end. God, I need help in that. I'm sure my friends here need help in that, and so I pray that you would help us to see that you are our God, giving us life and life in abundance. Amen. Amen.